This is a very, very sustainable career, but you've got to be the one who finds the courage in themselves to say, this might be my comfort zone, but being comfortable isn't good enough. It's because there's so much opportunity out there, you should never limit yourself. Welcome to Vet Life Reimagined. After this episode, you may only be able to say the word, wow. I am blown away with our guest, Marina John, a second career registered veterinary technician in Canada. She has a teacher's heart and has had many roles in veterinary hospitals. She is now a local veterinary technician and volunteers in a nonprofit hospital called Helping Paws. She teaches the veterinary assistant program at Vancouver University, and she is a huge advocate for Fear Free, which she is bringing into many different settings. Marina shares her fascinating journey through different parts of veterinary medicine. We discuss the misconception of the unicorn clinic. We talk about how veterinary medicine can be a sustainable career, and all throughout, take notes, because we discuss ways to set up your hospital culture for success. This episode is one you really might want to take notes on. It is my pleasure to bring you Marina John. You have a very different and maybe a unique way of how you found veterinary medicine. So what is your start? How did you discover that this might be a career for you? Yes. So for myself, I mean, I feel like most people in this industry have uh, very similar backgrounds as to how they got into veterinary medicine. They loved animals. They had animals their whole life. They're always rescuing animals and they always knew this is what they wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do in my 20s. I was very much a lost adult. So I decided that after I graduated from university with my Bachelor of Science degree, that I was going to fly halfway across the world to Seoul, South Korea, a place I had never been, where I didn't know anyone, where I didn't speak the language. And I figured, why not? Let's teach uh, English as a second language to grade five to grade nine never taught before, never really been around children before. Grade fives are super excited about everything. They love to learn. You know, you walk into the room and there's just this excitement and this buzz. And grade nines are your preteens. So you've got your 12 and 13 year olds and they're just mini adults. They know what they like, they know what they don't like, and they are not impressed by any of your shenanigans. So it was a huge learning curve for me, but I really quickly realized that I do love to teach. And that was an aspect that of that job that I definitely wanted to take and build on in my career, but something was always kind of missing. So one day I was sitting there on my lunch break, and embarrassingly enough, I took a BuzzFeed quiz, and it was, what are your top 10 career matches? And veterinary technologist was one of my top five. So I had never heard of a veterinary technologist. I didn't know that this was a thing at all. I'd never really been in a vet clinic before, so... I never knew that this was a potential career option. I looked into it a little bit and I went home that day and God bless my poor lovely husband. I said, you know, I think I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. I think I want to do this. And so do you want to maybe move back to Canada with me? And uh, within about a month, I had written my exams. I got into a university and we said, okay, packed up our lives from South Korea, moved out to Ridgetown, Ontario. Big shout out to Ridgetown. God bless them. It is a town that is so small that we drove through it a few times because we didn't realize we had driven past the town. There's oh. about a thousand people. And, and the big <laughs> the big moment in Ridgetown was when they opened a Tim Hortons. That's how small we are. <laughs> but it was great. It was it was probably the hardest 
hardest thing I've done. I had five years of university. I did a specialized degree. I figured two years of a diploma program, how hard could it be? Oh boy. (laughs) It was a lot, but one of like the best educations I could have asked for. And from there we moved again and we moved back in with my parents because when you get out of school as a technician, you don't have a lot of money. And my husband supported me through school by working a minimum wage job in another town because there were no jobs in our town. So it was a bit of a wake-up call and realizing that in order to be successful in this career, there may be things that I would have to give up. And home ownership was one of those things that I always thought was not in the cards for myself as a veterinary technologist. I'm happy to say 10 years down the road, that is not true anymore. So really, really glad as to the direction that this profession has taken. But it's been a road for me. (laughs) You mentioned the challenge academically in your Mm. program. When you looked around and and maybe thought about what you could do with this career, did you have any thoughts going through your training? Yeah. So going through my training, what I realized really quickly was how diverse this profession is. I think when I first started out, I was always under the assumption that as an RVT, you'd be someone who worked at a clinic. So you would find that clinic and then you would stay there for the duration of your career. But going through the academics, I got exposed to so many different avenues. I started to look at lab animal sciences, and I did that for a little bit. And I was fortunate enough to work with, at the time, the only RVT in Canada who was allowed to perform open heart surgery on animals. And it was an incredible experience for me because, I mean, it was mind blowing. I had no idea that that was something that we could do as RVTs. From there, I went on to do large animals. So I was a farrowing tech, which involved a lot of midwife, AI. I also did herd health. And that was a career in of itself. And my manager at the time at the farm offered me a job right off the bat and said, I don't even need you to finish school. Like what you've done here has been so great. I would hire you on the spot. Do you want to quit school? And I said, love you, but no, I really (laughs) want to see what else I can do. I know this is not your whole career, but I am curious to to hear you describe it and kind of what you were doing. 100%. So what I myself was doing was I was responsible primarily for herd health. So we had about 10 rooms with 30 plus sows in the rooms. And each of those sows can have anywhere from 9 to 15 piglets. So I was responsible for the health and well-being of all of those animals. So when one of them went into labor, I... I would glove up to the arms and I would be in there doing what I needed to do to help with the birthing process. And as soon as they were born, it was neonate care. So putting them under warming lamps, cleaning them up, teeth docking, tail docking, ear notching, and iron injections. You had to periodically go through and check every single piglet. They're they're not meant to be in such tight, confined spaces. So even though our farm did the best we could, they're just not meant to live like that. And one of the problems that you commonly have in these types of farms is self-mutilation or herd mutilation. So in order to prevent that, I would check every single animal in all the different pens. I also did quite a bit of neutering. We would neuter anywhere from about 100 to 200 piglets a day. And so now into my career, when I went back to um, companion animal, I was asked back in the day, do you want to learn how to do cat neuters? And I said, no, thank you. I have had my fill of testicles. I am good. 
Um, and yes, AI was also a part of it. So we would have our, our big boars who would be brought in and we would do collection artificial insemination on our sows as well. I can't say that um, it's something I want to do again. <laughs> boars are pretty intimidating. They're quite large animals and they know exactly what they want. And if you're in their way, they don't have a problem physically moving you. And as a woman who's five feet tall, I got moved a lot. Well, thank you for sharing that because that is probably not an experience very many people have. (laughs) But I I think that is so good to just explore different things out there. And even if it becomes just a really fun story to tell, I've got some (laughs) of those too. I think it's a part about learning about yourself and and again, that you were still dedicated to completing your program. So I think that's that's really interesting. So didn't decide that that was forever for you. You, you went to go finish your program. What was next? So with finishing my program, I got the opportunity to also work with dairy cattle. Realized very quickly I'm terrified of cows. And that was not the career for me. I also worked with horses. And again... Whenever they bring out that little step stool for me to be like, hey, go ahead and stand on this so you can climb on the horse. I was like, so this is not the career for me. (laughs) Um, But it was definitely interesting. And then when I left school, we moved back to Toronto and I got a job with the veterinarian and he had just opened this practice. And when I say it's brand new, I mean, like we had nothing in the practice except for four walls, a roof and the floor. So back in the day, we used to order all of our supplies from this big binder because they weren't on websites yet. So he just handed me this binder and said, here you go, order everything that a vet clinic will need. And I also need you to hire the remaining of the staff, set up protocols, do timesheets, and anything you could think of that needed to be done that wasn't the actual going into exams and providing uh, appointments and what a vet can specifically do. Everything else fell on my shoulders. So I'd been out of school for about three months at this point, and (laughs) myself being who I am, I said, sure, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'll learn as I go. Um, It was a learning experience, certainly. I don't know that I would recommend it for other new grads because it was a lot. And unfortunately, this is also sort of the first time that I really experienced a tremendous amount of uh, bullying in the industry, which is part as much as there's so much that's really beautiful and lovely and all the heart that goes into what we do and in our industry and the caring and the empathy, there is a little bit of a dark underbelly to veterinary medicine. And part of it is bullying and part of it is toxicity. So while I was working with this vet, there was a lot going on in the background. But one of his favorite things to say to me whenever I had a question or whenever I had an opinion that may differ from him was for him to tell me, well, you're just a woman. And you're just a tech. So what makes you think you can say anything? And that went on for quite a while, a few months. And eventually I realized that this is just not right. And I wasn't learning and I certainly wasn't building my confidence. So I went to a professionalism and ethics course, which was one of the requirements for us here in Canada, in Ontario specifically, to be able to be considered RVTs, is you have to complete this course as well as writing your VTNE and going through your, your actual program. And at this course, at the end of the class, I went up to the instructor and said, hey, do you think I could pick your brain about this? I don't have a lot of experience with vet clinics. I don't know if this is what it's supposed to be like. 
And so she and I chatted for a few minutes and I could just see the color drain from her face as I talked about my experiences. And she went, okay, well, that's not what it's supposed to be like. And then a few days later, she actually just showed up to the practice to talk to the clinic owner. And she said, hey, you know, like I I do this course, I have my consulting business. I'm just curious to know about your practice. They chatted for a while. She hung around for the day. And towards the end of my shift, she went, okay, Marina, I need you to get your purse because we're leaving. And so she physically walked me out of the practice. And then kind of from there, things got much better. But yeah, my first job was really interesting. So huge learning opportunity, learned what's not okay and learned what I am okay and what I'm not okay with. So yeah. Yeah. Good for her. I'm <laughs> she's, she is still in my life. She's my mentor and I absolutely love her. So yeah, she's my biggest thing is for anyone who's in that situation, don't be afraid to talk to people and don't be afraid to ask for help. There are so many people out there who will help you. And if you're sitting there wondering, is this the way it's supposed to be? Like, is it me? I don't know that it's necessarily you, but talk to someone, get help. Yeah. And sometimes that outside perspective is extremely important as well. So Absolutely. I'm glad that you are able to find somebody and not just find somebody, but you, you walked up to somebody else, right? <laughs> you, you took the initiative to be proactive, to, to see, let me, let me get somebody else's opinion on this and make sure that I, I know how to handle <laughs> this. And I'm glad that that was the outcome for you. So did she connect you with another opportunity or how did you find the next? Yeah. yeah, so she recommended a vet clinic that I ended up staying with for many years. And it was a veterinary practice. It was GP, but they had a big focus on ophthalmology. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot about different kinds of eye surgeries, everything from keratotomies to we did product duct transpositions. And those were all really unique experiences that not everybody gets exposure to. I can also intubate and put an IV catheter in any kind of brachiocephalic now because that's all we really got. I had all the Frenchies and all the Bulldogs. So (laughs) really amazing opportunity. I was there for many years and it was a really unique setup because it was two vet clinics that were right next door to each other in a big building. And the GP practice was owned by the father and next door was an ER referral urgent care practice that was owned by his son. And I lived in the apartment above both practices. I started off in the GP and then I did eventually sort of get poached and went next door to the ER. And then I worked in ER and referral for a few years as well. Initially, not having to commute to work was so lovely. But after a few years, there's the, you're sort of never not on call and you're sort of never not working. Because even when I was upstairs, I was always wondering like, oh, what's happening down there? Are we short staffed today? And I still remember this one night when we were all asleep in bed. It was probably like 11, 11.30 and my phone just started going off. And I got all these panicked messages saying that they only had one tech on that night. And that tech unfortunately was really ill and was heading home. And we had 14 patients who had been hospitalized. We had a few triages that were waiting and some were quite critical. And they had three patients waiting for a blood transfusion. So I jumped out of bed, threw my scrubs on, ran downstairs, and I worked a 17-hour shift that day and then came back home, you know, back up the stairs. 
wow. Yeah. So again, one of those really amazing opportunities. I learned so much and they were all things that I had never done before. So I'd never done a blood transfusion. I had never done um, bronchial alveolar lavage. And that's one of the scariest procedures I've ever been a part of. And I remember the vet who was working with me saying, so we're sort of kind of going to waterboard them a little bit, but it's okay. And I went, oh, oh, okay. Great. <laughs> but that was, that was probably the, towards the end of my career out east. And then we decided that living and working in Toronto in a construction zone above the clinic that I worked at was perhaps not the best for my mental health or my relationship, really. My relationship took a big hit from my needing to put my career ahead all the time and not knowing how to set up those healthy boundaries. Because I'm also part of that generation where having boundaries was not something that was seen as a good thing. If you worked through your breaks and if you didn't eat food that day and if you didn't take your lunches and if you didn't go on holidays, that was the point of pride. It's, It was almost like a competition. Oh, you only worked five days this week? Well, I worked seven days this week. And again, now a few years down the road, looking back, I'm starting to recognize why that was so problematic. And I love the fact that as a profession, we're moving away from that culture because we definitely need to. But my way of being able to disengage from it was recognizing that my living situation was not appropriate. And we really needed not only a change of pace, but I just needed a fresh new start. So my husband had always been talking about Victoria, BC. He had been out here on vacation this one time and he loved it and the island life. And so I said, you know what, let's just go for it. So I called a vet clinic in Victoria and said, any chance you're looking for tax? Not knowing what the tax situation in BC was like. So the manager at the clinic went, um, yeah. We're looking for techs. We're always looking for techs. I said, okay, well, I'm from Ontario. Would you hire me? Here's my skills and all of that. And she said, well, can you be here in a week? Because I really need someone. I said, yeah, I think I can make a drive in a week. No problem. My husband got home that day and I said, hey, so (laughs) do you want to quit your job and move to the other side of Canada? And like, we've got a week to do it. (laughs) again god bless him he's a really good man he said okay i guess that's what we're doing so a week later here we were out in victoria bc place i'd never been didn't know anybody and found an apartment online that i'd never seen before and just went yeah sure here i'll sign a contract whatever it's an apartment turned out to be a really nice apartment really close to the workplace that i needed to be at and we've been here for the last five years and two years ago we bought our first home together you hit on a couple of things that we also mentioned before the the culture of I think you used the term martyr where the harder you can work the harder we look like we are putting into it the that is the the pride right and yes. it's not sustainable at all this sounds like an area that was definitely short staffed so maybe harder to get back into what you were hoping for and in a work-life balance, but were they different? Did they, they have more support? What was your experience? 
Yeah, so my experience was definitely different. I think just even as much as like ER is definitely one of the loves of my life. To this day, I still will find time to go locum at an ER because I learn best in that kind of environment because it's sink or swim. You've got to learn. You've got to learn quickly. And if you're a person who thrives in that environment, it's just such a fabulous opportunity and such a great way to pick up knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. That all being said, it really, really is a commitment and a lifestyle change when you're in here. Mm. Going back to GP, I just wasn't required to work as many hours. And my schedule was my schedule. And I had days off. And when I was off, I was not to come to work. Like, even if it was just to like, you know, stop by and say hi, I would be there for like maybe five minutes and be like, okay, we love you. We'll see you on your next scheduled work day. You need to go home. And so it was really refreshing to be somewhere where they really respected the fact that when you're off, you're off and that is your time. And you're not to think about work. You're not to reply to work emails. And they were very respectful to make sure that they didn't send me any emails during those times. So it was a huge shift for us because all of a sudden I had evenings with my husband. I had weekends with my husband. We started going for walks because we could. And it, it sounds like, cause you do so many different things. You might've had opportunities to not only just enjoy your family and the simple pleasures of, of walking with them, but you've been able to do teaching. You're, you teach now in a university. You're a big part of different veterinary technician organizations. This is just grown you to a whole new person and you're able to give back and gain more skills that you can bring back to that clinic that allows you to have that balance. Where are you finding your, your biggest joys these days when it comes to working in veterinary medicine? So my biggest joys in veterinary medicine right now, I mean, definitely the teaching is part of it. I love being able to teach the veterinary assistant program at Vancouver Island University. I have a mix of students, so I will get anything from the 17-year-old who wants to go into veterinary medicine as their profession to the lovely retired Gabby who just wants to know how to take better care of little Fluffy at home. And it's it's just such a fantastic array of personalities and individuals that I get to meet and teach and talk about life experiences with. My other passion as well is the charity work that I'm fortunate enough to be involved with. So there's a group here in in Nanaimo called uh, Helping Paws that is run by one of the most amazing individuals. She's a vet. She's been doing this for years. It's 100% nonprofit. Everything that they do is by volunteers. All the supplies that they have are through very generous donations. And at our most recent clinic, we were able to provide veterinary care services for 90 plus animals in the span of three hours. Wow. And that includes everything from a full physical exam, updating all of their vaccines, providing them with dewormers, flea and tick medications and microchipping them. Plus, we also deal with things like if they've got like a skin rash or an eye problem, there's medications that are dispensed right on site. If they need dental work, we can explain the dental surgery to them and be able to provide them with an estimate. All of that in three hours, 100% volunteers. So it's it's really heartwarming. And the individuals who come to these clinics, they're from low-income families or they're part of the uh, homeless population here on the island. 
So these are animals that otherwise will not receive veterinary care because they simply can't afford it. And post-pandemic especially, we've seen so many people. I, I mean, I can't count the number of conversations I've had with women who are pregnant and who come in and say, you know, before the pandemic, I had a good job. I could afford vet care, but now I'm I'm on mat leave. I'm just not making any money and I can't afford to take care of my pets. And if it wasn't for this clinic, I don't know what I would do. And all I could think of was that could be any of us. I mean, all it takes is, you know, a disaster like that. And I could be in those shoes. So being able to be there and provide that service warms my heart in a way that I can't describe. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. If we could all stop and think a little more empathetically when people come in and or they say like they can't pay for something, we have no idea what's going on at home. And so it is wonderful to be able to be part of an organization where you can get that taken care of, right? You get to practice the, the medicine that you are inspired to do and give back in that unique way. I feel like it's definitely... As I've grown and matured in this industry and grown as a technologist, it's definitely been an eye-opening experience to see sometimes it's really hard not to make assumptions, especially if all you've done is work in clinic. When you've got that client that comes in, they look a certain way, they speak a certain way, You, your mind sort of almost goes to the point where, oh, well, they're going to just decline all the diagnostics anyways. And it's hard not to make those assumptions, but I'm so grateful to have had the opportunities that I've had because I've gotten to see the people behind those moments. And so now I I try really hard not to make those assumptions because there's so much more going on in the background that you're never going to know. And I'm always surprised sometimes by the people who, you know, I've had people come in and say, I know that my pet needs a dental, so I'm going to sell my car so I can afford to pay for this. Wow. And I just need an estimate so that I can know how much I need to sell my car for. And that's amazing. Yeah. Can you cry every day? No. <laughs> <laughs> Most days. <laughs> oh. uh, well, one of the first things I asked when I said, why are you interested in coming and sharing your story on, on Vet Life Reimagined, you said you really want people to know that veterinary medicine can be a sustainable career. And mm -hmm. so just kind of through your experience with your working with others, what gives you that confidence and, and what else would you like to share with people about that? Absolutely. So what's given me the confidence is honestly time. I've learned so much over the last, and 10 years in this industry is, is really nothing. <laughs> it's not a long time, but I've had such a varied career over the last 10 years that it's opened my eyes to all the different possibilities that are out there. Like I said, when I first started out, I believed in my core to the myth of the unicorn clinic. I thought you had to, your goal as an RVT was to find that practice where you would stay for the next 20, 25 years of your life. You would be their lead tech. You would be that person that they couldn't function without. And then you would retire or die. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is, again, yep. something else we all say, and we've all heard someone say, oh, I'm going to drop dead at work one day. Oh, that's not okay. 
no, I want to drop dead in, in like this background here on the <laughs> beach under the sun. <laughs> so it's taken a long time to be able to change my perspective, but that has come from the fact that I have pursued every opportunity that I heard about, read about, or saw. I didn't have any experience working with pigs before I started working with pigs. I didn't have any experience in lab animal sciences before I did that. Don't be afraid of the no. Just go for it. Because the worst thing someone can say is no. Or honestly, most of the time they say, not right now, but I'm going to keep you in mind. And they do come back to you. But you've got to be the one that goes out there and says, I may not know how to do this right now, but if you teach me, I will learn. I will learn really well, and I'll be the best that you've had. Mm. And one of the best pieces of advice I got was from this just amazing, amazing veterinarian who had been in the profession for 50 plus years and was still going strong. And she said to me, listen, this whole idea of unicorn clinic, she's like, I don't, it's garbage. Just put it out of your mind. Okay. If you were to look at my resume, you would think I could not keep down a job because every two or three years I change jobs. And that's not because I couldn't keep down a job. It's because there's so much opportunity out there. You should never limit yourself. And I just thought, oh, light bulb moment. That's amazing. As someone who's been in management, if I got two different resumes and I was hiring for a position of an RVT and one resume was for a person who had been at one clinic for 15, 20 years, and the other resume was someone like myself who's done ER, ICU, referral, large animal, small animal, exotics, I am far more likely to want to hire the person that has done more. Because a person that's been at that one clinic for years and years, it's great that they have the experience. But they know how to do that one thing at that one practice. So don't limit yourself. This is a very, very sustainable career. But you've got to be the one who finds the courage in themselves to say, this might be my comfort zone, but being comfortable isn't good enough. For most people, not. If you are if you are happy, by all means, you, you stay where Absolutely. you are. And, and you can also find experiences often within the same hospital. So mm -hmm. we had a guest, Nicole Dickerson, and she is at VTS in, in emergency and critical care. But she talked about that she would go with the patient and sit and watch the radiology team do something. And she would learn something from them. And then she would mm -hmm. go to the internal medicine team and she learned something from them, especially if you have a big hospital like that, where you can learn yes. from different specialties and learn new skills. You may even be like, wow, maybe I maybe I want to go and specialize or maybe I do want to move into a different department. Those are all things that are okay to think. They're okay to explore. And mm -hmm. if you are in an environment that thinks otherwise, then don't listen to them. It's your life. You you have to live your life. They do not. There are so many opportunities in veterinary medicine. That's why we have this podcast. So I'm so glad, glad that you believe that as well. And that is your experience. Another thing that you talked about that you're very passionate about, and I, I think I think this can go in hand in hand with sustainable careers, increasing the diversity of our profession is definitely a conversation that we talk about. And, and you mentioned yourself that when you look around, there's 
not necessarily a lot of people who come from your background. So what what is your experience with that? Yeah, so, and I say this quite often, honestly, as an icebreaker, because talking about race and culture is not always the most comfortable topic for a lot of people, because I genuinely believe that in our heart of hearts, we want to be able to do our best. And we want to not offend anyone else. And that's really important to us. And especially as a Canadian, we are a very non-offensive group of people. (laughs) We will apologize at the drop of a hat. So I will often say, hey, I know that there isn't going to be anyone else that looks like me. And that's not just because I've got bright purple hair. Like, (laughs) it's okay. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. It's fine. Diversity is so important. Representation in medicine is so critical. I was listening to this podcast by uh, an African-American human nurse, and he was talking about his experiences in the industry. So he had this one day where there was a patient who was being looked after by one of his colleagues who was Caucasian, and his Caucasian colleague came to speak with him about the patient. And she said, you know, I'm really worried about this patient, and I think I need to order a psych consult. So he was a bit taken aback because that's pretty unusual. And he said, okay, well, what's making you feel this way? And she replied, well, every time I go into the room, I find her smacking herself in the head, like obsessively. She's just sitting there hitting herself. And when I ask her about it, she just pretends like it didn't happen. And she said, this has happened a few times. And I'm just getting really concerned that maybe she needs to speak to somebody. So, you know, he chuckled for a moment and said, is there any chance that she's African-American? And his colleague went, yeah, she is. Great. Um, He said, does she have her hair in braids? And his colleague said, yeah, how did you know? So he smiled again and said, so here's the thing. When your hair is in braids, you are taught not to scratch. Instead, you pat yourself over and over when you're when your scalp is itchy, because otherwise you're going to wreck your braids. And she went, oh, I had no idea. No psych consult. So representation in medicine is really important because there are cultural aspects to, to things. And especially when it comes to we, what we do, we mix patient care, we mix finances, very difficult conversations about finances, euthanasia, pet care, and we're providing medical care for patients who can't talk to us in a language we can necessarily understand. So we really have to be able to bridge the gap between the client and the medical professional in the room. And the best way to be able to do that is to be able to have cultural milestones that you share. If you want to be able to have a really productive conversation with someone and establish trust, one of the best things to do is laugh together. When you've got those moments that you can share and say, hey, you know, so-and-so and and this, and has that ever happened to you? That's a great moment to be able to have. And a few years ago, in 2020, our organization, the BCVTA, did a a wage survey. We've got roughly anywhere from 12 to 1,400 active members right now. Of those, about 405 took the wage survey. One of our questions was, how would you self-identify in terms of your ethnicity? Of the 405 people who took the survey, five people, not 5%, five people identified as people of color. So for myself, as a person of color, 
I, again, jokingly say, I'm going to find the rest four of you. <laughs> and <laughs> and I think that's, that's huge. It's eye-opening. BC is a very diverse region. We have a huge minority population. So when you're talking about your the person that you're going to see the most, in most GP practices, the veterinary technologist is the one you're going to interact with the most. The vet's going to come in, they're going to do their exam, they're going to do their diagnosis. But the tech is the one who's going to do the discharge. They're the one who are going to stay with your patients for the longest amount of time. And let's be honest, they're the ones who are going to take the cute photos of themselves cuddling your pet. <laughs> so being able to have more people who look like us when we're in those situations is vital. What a great point, you know, and Nicole's episode is coming back and reminding me again, but she's not the only one who has said this, but one of the big things that sparked her, because she's a second career veterinary technician as well, was when her cat was hurt and she went into the vet, she remembers that that tech. And that was kind of inspiring to her. And that was one of the big starts of her journey. And that's how impactful veterinary technicians can be. Because what you just said, you are interacting with that pet owner a lot. And you matter. You matter in many, many ways, but you definitely matter to that pet owner. And so whether you just remember that and you take care of that pet owner and having people that look like our audience who look like our pet owners, that means a lot to them. So if we can continue to support individuals in every way we can, that they can make that relationship and that connection, that builds trust within the practice between clients and that just makes life so much easier <laughs> and happier. Right. And so that, I mean, it's just overall beautiful. And I, I think one, I'm very passionate about this industry as well. And I think anybody who wants to be in it needs to be in it and come on right now. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's always good to get that reminder of you matter, you make a difference to somebody. So if you do look around, and I think specifically you said when you go to a conference, right, mm-hmm. you look around and it's a little bit different <laughs> than home because <laughs> if you look at the pet owning population, it's ginormous. It is very diverse and and who owns pets. So we have a lot of opportunity to continue to grow there and support in really big ways. Yeah, hundred percent. My biggest advice for most vet clinics is to have an open house, invite in the community that you actually serve. Who doesn't like a little wine and cheese mixer? We all do. We all do. With puppies. I mean, mean, come on, right? Do it. You know, one evening, one weekend, take two hours, open it up for your community and say, hey, we want to know how to serve you better because we're here. We're physically here to help you to provide the best care that we can, but we can't do it if we don't know what you need. And if we don't know who we're serving, get them to come and sit down and talk to you about what's working and more importantly, what's not working and how you can change that. And it's a beautiful moment of connection. And even if you know, not much else comes out of it other than you had a great, fantastic time. You've built trust there because now you're not a nameless, faceless entity behind a door who's going to take their pet away from them to do something and then give them a bill. Now they know who you are. Yeah. I just pictured if my dentist had an open house, that would be so 
less intimidating than when they ask questions and they have like a drill in my mouth. So (laughs) (laughs) what's with that? Why do they always try talking to you when it's happening? Like I I got nothing for you. (laughs) But I, I love that idea. I love that suggestion on a way to really build those relationships with our clients and stop and listen to them, you know, mm-hmm. get to know them. What an opportunity for your, for the whole hospital too, to absolutely be able to do this in a relax where it's, we just get to focus on, on talking with people and, and serving them the cheese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What, what a fantastic suggestion. One of the things that I also love that you are able to do, because this is a great example of building skills within the practice that you're already in. And that is you have really invested in learning a lot of fear-free. And you mm-hmm. even said that you, you're bringing it into curriculum. So mm-hmm. I would love for you to share a little bit about how you fell in love with fear-free and how you think that is making a big impact as well. Mm. I think fear-free is absolutely the direction that our industry needs to take. I think the days of vet techs slamming down animals to get procedures done, oh, we're so not doing that anymore. And I can speak to it from both a veterinary professional as well as a pet owner perspective, because I have not one, but two Shiba Inus. And at the best of times, they're sort of like land sharks. (laughs) And they're, they're challenging animals because they're extremely intelligent, they're opinionated, and they're very individual. So learning how to navigate my own pet and seeing the difference that Fear Free made, I can never go back. Now, I run my own business now as well as a locum vet, as locum vet tech. I proudly wear the Fear Free certified, and I can't tell you the number of clients that I get who'll say, hey, be really careful with my cat. I'm sorry in advance. She's spicy. She's temperamental. And I do everything I can think of to make that visit easier. So I always ask the vet for the PVPs, the pre-visit prescriptions. And in the appointment, I am Fila Wade out the wazoo, and I've got the towel with the Fila Wade, and I've got the the little kitty crack in a tube, and I am ready for this pet. The, the lights down, the music's on. I am setting a mood like it is date night Friday, and we haven't had a date night in 25 years. <laughs> so this client comes in, and their stress level is through the roof, but immediately they hear the music, they see the lighting. And they see their cat start to relax. And then they see how I interact with their patient. And nine out of 10 times when they leave the room, they go, wow, you are fantastic with that with my pet. Like, she's never like that. I thought she would bite your face off. And I went, well, I wouldn't like that. And it's not nice for her. So we don't have to put her in that situation. So next time, why don't you just put her in the car and give her treats and just sit in your driveway? And we talk through all the different ways that we can make every visit that much easier for them. And if they follow through on that, and I will follow up with them because I'll send them an email or a text and say, hey, how's it going? Like, did you get a chance to try that? Like, do you want me to stop by and take a look? So that follow-up also helps. And again, what a fantastic opportunity as an RVT to be able to create a job for yourself in the clinic. You could be the person that runs the Fear Free program, right? A great You don't necessarily have to be the one who's putting in catheters and in surgery if that's not your thing. But here's another avenue where you can create a sustainable career. 
I'm also now introducing this into my curriculum because it's not just RVTs who need to know how to do this. Everybody needs to know how to do this. In reception, right from there, I start. As soon as that client gets in the door, A, have they had their PVPs? B, if it's a cat, let's keep the cat away from the dog whose snout is in its carrier. Cats are creatures that like to be high up. So when the client goes to put the carrier on the ground, let's have that receptionist who goes up and says, hey, here's a table that we've got set aside for your cat's carrier. Here's a basket with a whole bunch of towels that are feel away sprayed. So we start from right there. So now all of my vet assistant students, my goal for the year is to make sure that this cohort graduates with their level one fear-free certification. So that's what we're going to be spending the next two months working on. And fingers crossed, if everybody does really well, I'm going to take them out on a, a day trip and we're going to go to one of the nonprofit clinics and they're going to be able to apply their fear-free and get some hands-on experience. Oh, I love that. And I agree. You know, I was thinking at the same time as you were saying it, how wonderful if we were able to teach some of these skills to the pet owner. I mean, I'm thinking about it for myself. I was like, oh, I was like, I'm not in clinic anymore, but I've got two great Danes that I probably need to learn some of those skills for myself. So yeah, what a neat opportunity that you're able to share that again, offer additional value to the pet owner. Those are all wonderful things, both internally and externally. Thank you so much for sharing that. So maybe a couple last questions. One, what is one thing that you would like to leave people who are listening with us today? So I thought about that quite a bit. And I'm fortunate enough to also be a part of a few of the veterinary technologist social media sites. And I just wanted to pull out some words that I've seen throughout different groups. So everything from the overwhelmed vet tech to veterinarians, vet techs, and vet assistants united, which are some of the bigger groups that are out there. Some common themes that I hear constantly that I would really like for us all to be mindful of and to change because we can't, we can change it. Gaslighting, poor team morale, poor health, unhappy partner, work harder because the clinic is short-staffed. Jump ship, sad, tired, tired of being poor, tired of being belittled, of being yelled at. Today broke me. I'm scared to say anything. That really hit me. Because I've been there. And we can make it so much better. And I don't think it's that hard to make it that much better. You know, when you're short-staffed, guess what you do? You switch your schedule around. You make it a little easier on the staff that you have. So you take a short-term hit for long-term staff retention. Tired, poor, poor health. Yeah, let's set those boundaries up. Let's respect those boundaries. And let's teach people to celebrate the boundaries. Yelling and belittling? That should just be a no. I don't care who you are. <laughs> you don't treat people like that. So that's got to go top bottom. Yeah. As clinic owners, as managers, as lead RVTs. If you see anyone behaving that way, it's, it's really easy. We just step in and you advocate for the person. And you say, hey, I can see something's gone wrong. Why don't we step into our office, 
Step outside for a moment. Let's go talk. Tell me how we can make it better. Because the way we're expressing ourselves right now is not appropriate. You don't have to yell back. You can be the quiet person in the room that makes a difference. So let's all do it. Let's just make it better for each other. Amen. You're right. That one, Those do hurt very much, yeah. especially when you are someone who cares so much about, and, and when I say I care about this profession, what I mean is I care about the people because the people are the profession. And Absolutely. so if we don't take care of each other, then we don't have a profession. So I, I completely agree. And final question. I think this mm-hmm. is a beautiful way to kind of wrap up everything and highlight you and what makes you happy. What is something that you are most grateful for? I am most grateful for my family and the support system that I've been able to establish in this industry. Because without my without my partner, without my dogs <laughs> who keep me sane, <laughs> And without my mentors and my friends and the people in the industry who are going through the same things that I've been through, who've been there to support me through the hard times, I don't know that 10 years on the road, I would still be here. But I am here and I'm going to stay here for as long as I can. (laughs) And I'm so glad for that because this profession is very lucky to have you. So thank you so much for being a guest and in sharing all of your wisdom and your joy. It, It has been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for what you do and for giving us a platform to share. Okay. So did you go, wow? Amazing, right? Thank you for being here. It means a lot. And Vet Life Reimagined is growing. We have a couple of sponsors who are supporting my hosting platform, Buzzsprout. So thank you to Will Hughes and Fire Consulting. We are looking for partners to help support the show. So don't hesitate to reach out if you're interested or know a company that might be interested. I'm also looking for speaking opportunities and I greatly appreciate any insight there. So please share these amazing messages and we have so much more coming. See you next week.